this semester on Wednesday night, so this is the first college Bible study of the semester, obviously, and if it's your first uh, time to CBS at Lakeview, um, thanks for coming. Um, but this, this semester on Wednesday nights, every Wednesday at 8, uh, we'll, uh, we're going to go through a series I'm calling Cross Culture. Now there will be, I'm going to describe what that is and give you a little context for it. That's what we're going to talk about that most weeks. I will plug um, on, I think it's September the 17th, my wife, Laura, who was here, she's gone, uh, she and I are going to do a relationship talk on uh, September 17th. Now what that means is uh, in a couple of weeks, you guys will be able to anonymously submit questions, relationship type questions um, to us, and uh, you don't have to put your name, say, I'm a guy or a girl. Here's my question. We'll sort through them, and uh, and then we'll do our best to answer those. So you don't want to miss that week. That'll be, I think, probably funny. But um, anyway, uh, hopefully we can help you some there. But anyway, we're calling this series uh, Cross Culture. And I, what I mean by that is not in the sense of relating well to people of other cultures, though that's a good thing. Um, but rather what I mean and why I'm calling that Cross Culture is because I'm talking about people who know and, and profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Um, among those who profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, there ought to be, um, it ought to be a unique culture of people, unlike no other culture of people. The people who, 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 who profess Jesus Christ to be Savior and Lord ought to be a culture of its own, centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. A people who view themselves and and everything in their life through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, so we are a culture of the cross. That's what I mean by cross culture. We are a cross culture. Um, and we see all of our struggles in light of the cross. If you were here Sunday, I, I told you that, that typically on Sunday mornings, um, we teach straight through books of the Bible. Um, and so this, this fall and spring, this school year, we're going to be teaching through the book of Hebrews, um, starting that in two weeks. But on Wednesday nights, it's a little more topical. And this, this uh, Wednesday, on Wednesday, this semester on Wednesdays, as part of this, we're going we're gonna to talk about, be real about things we all struggle with. I mean, there, there are things outside of us that are obstacles to our faith and our faithful walk with Jesus Christ. But let's be honest, for every single one of us, there's, there's stuff going on in our hearts that are, that are obstacles to our faithful walk with Christ. And, um, and those obstacles, uh, we, gain, we, we hardly gain victory over those obstacles in our hearts when we don't talk about them at all. And we just, we deceive ourselves. And, 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 uh, and, and so we're going to talk about those things. And uh, on your table uh, is just sort of a, a glimpse of some of the topics we're going to talk about this semester but what kind of people ought we to be in light of the cross of Jesus Christ? That's what I want us to think about. So what I want to do for this first CBS of the semester is, is introduce that to you and give you a little context. And to do that, I want to think about a well-known passage of Scripture together. Maybe well-known to some of you. Some of you may not. Maybe, not. Uh, maybe think about it in a way we haven't thought before. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You have your own Bible, you can look there. If you didn't bring your Bible, I think I'll have it on the screen. 
Yeah, there, there it is. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There are two things that Paul says in that verse that I want to focus on tonight. What does it mean to be in Christ? He says if anyone is in Christ, well, he's a new creation. So let's be clear on what in, what in the world does it mean to be in Christ? Um, and the second thing is, okay, what does it mean to be a new creation? What does it look like to be a new creation? What does, yeah, what does, that, what does that look like in real life? So um, how is a Christian a new creation? So before we start thinking about this verse and those things, uh, can we pray together? Father, thank you so much for this, your word. This is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary word. And uh, it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God. And I pray that you would give me the help that I need to teach the truths here and to teach them faithfully and with the passion that, that it deserves. Please give us ears to hear. Please give us minds to understand the truth. Please give us hearts to embrace the truth and not to scoff at it. Father, if there's anybody in this room that sits here tonight with a, with, a, with a heart bent against what it is you have to say here. Or whatever it is that I have to say. And I don't have anything worth saying except what you say. I pray, Father, that you would break down all of our resistance to your truth. Help us to embrace and love the truth so that we gladly obey it and do it. And I pray that we would be a a culture of people bought by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross who live as a people of the cross for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does it mean to be in Christ? So Paul begins this verse and says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If anyone is in Christ. So what in the world does it mean to be in Christ? And why does he say it like that? I'll say this. Those are two of the most beautiful words in the Bible. In Christ. And, 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 and when you understand, I mean, we're reading these books in this neighborhood of the Bible. There's a lot of stuff that is said prior to those words. When you understand all of this right here, the words in Christ are two of the most beautiful words in the Bible. If you started reading the Bible at the beginning, you read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And right there, the, 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 in the first words of the Bible, we're not only introduced to, to God, but several things about him. Uh, we're told that of God that he created the heavens and the earth. And from that fact alone, you learn several things. One, you learn that God has always been there. He's eternal. I mean, uh, in the beginning, when everything else came into being, God was already there, creating it. God is not our creation. He's not our idea. We are his creation. The book of Psalms says in Psalm 90 verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
So that's one thing. He's, he's eternal. Another thing, he's not dependent on us in any way whatsoever. God the uncreated one. We sang it. And when Paul was preaching, in, if you read the book of Acts, when Paul was preaching in Athens, Greece, uh, he told them that, that the God who made the world, as he put it, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life and breath and all things to all mankind. He doesn't need us for anything. But we need him just to breathe. We breathe on God's good grace. God has always been. He always will be. We're dependent on him for literally everything in our lives, even the very breath we breathe. But the very first verse of the Bible, still, still there, also shows us that God is powerful. I mean, if you think about how powerful some things are in creation. And where did that power come from? Aside from the one who made it and infused it with that power. From the opening words of the Bible, we're still in Genesis 1.1. You learn that God is wise. Look at the complexity of the world that he made. Look at the irreducible complexity of it. It blows your mind how amazing the world is. You learn right at the very first words of the Bible how holy and how good God is. Think of, the, think of the chapter of Genesis 1. God created a world and over and over and over again in that, in that opening chapter, He said, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then He creates Adam and Eve in His own image. He says, it's very good. So God didn't create a wicked and messed up world. God, God created a, a, a good world that is pure in every way to reflect how good and how pure and how holy He is, and God was kind to do that. But in addition to all these things, the very first words of the Bible teaches that God is Lord over all that He made. That's a lot to get out of one verse. He's Lord over all that He made. How did He create all those things in Genesis 1? He spoke it. And, 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 and creation obeyed. Just try doing that. Think of something that doesn't exist and try to speak it into existence. That'd be a pretty cool thing to be able to do. There's only one that can, though. And that's how all, that's, that's how all of creation was to be. It's not just that trees were to obey. It's not just that light was to obey. Not just the land and the waters were to part when he said so. But when Adam and Eve came along, they, were, they too were to recognize that God is Lord and they were to marvel at his majesty, marvel at his wisdom, marvel at his power, marvel at his lordship, marvel and do all that he says. And because God is good, he created the world in such a way that if we would do what he said, if we would, if we would just do what he said, it, this this, that would be the happiest life on earth. That would be the, the most satisfying life on earth. It would be the most fulfilling life on earth. It would be the most joyful life on earth. God not only cre created us and, the, and, the, and the, the world that we live in, but showed us through that that He's not only eternal and powerful and holy and good, but He's Lord and He shows us those things about Himself so that we would marvel at Him and love Him. God put that kind of desire in our hearts. If you've been coming to Lakeview for any time since I've been here, you've heard this story. A lot of you haven't. But when I think about that, I can't get past the, 
the experiences that God has given me to, to show me this about myself and about him. Several years ago, um, Laura and I um, went to the Grand Canyon. And um, we're, I'm, I'm terrified of heights. So I don't know why I did this. But we found a place where there's no rail, and it was like a, just a rock that jutted out. And, man, we were walking out there. It was just breathtaking. It was breathtaking. We're standing there just looking for a while, and all of a sudden, Laura's not there anymore. She's walked down a ways from me, and I realize she's talking to some other people, and she's not even talking English. She's speaking in French. Um, and they're, fr- they're, they're French, and she's blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, and, and, and they were understanding what she was saying. She was understanding what they were saying, and uh, they wanted their picture taken, so that's what they were talking about. And so Laura took their picture and, um, and came back, and uh, I was marveled at first by my own wife. I didn't, I mean, I knew she took some French, but I didn't know it stayed with her, and she's she talking to people in French. And uh, I thought, that, wow, I, that's, I got a great wife. Um, and then, then it just dawned on me. I was like, those people came all the way from France. Like, there were, like, French people down there. People came all the way from France to the Grand Canyon, paid what probably was hundreds, if not a couple of thousand dollars to fly a long flight. All the way, I mean, you know, hours and hours and hours. Spent a lot of money and a lot of time just to stand at the Grand Canyon. Why? Why would people do that? I know why. Because God has wired us. He, and, he, and He's wired you this way. He's wired us in such a way that we want to be in the presence of something much bigger than ourselves. To be in the presence of something way more majestic than ourselves. Like, it's a joy, it's a joy, like, oddly enough, it's a joyful experience to know how small we are. And, and, it's, and, and just to be in the presence of something so enormous and majestic. It's so satisfying to be in the presence of something that makes me forget about myself altogether. Which is something that we hardly ever do. We hardly ever forget about ourselves. We are on our own minds all the time. We're consumed with ourselves. But it's, it's really so satisfying to be in something to go, wow, and just admire that thing. Totally forget about me altogether. Why did God, why did God wire us that way? Because he wants us to be that way with him. He wants us to, God is greater than the Grand Canyon, right? God created us and, and revealed himself to us that we would marvel at him and that we would, we would worship him and, and say, and so because we're marveling at him and worshiping and loving him, and so we say, whatever you say, God, I will happily do. Satisfying life. I know this is what will honor you, and I know that it will be best for me. But we know from the story of the Bible that that's not what we did in Adam or Eve. It's not what we do till this day. For whatever reason, Adam and Eve went their own way instead of God's. We've continued the trend. You've done it. I've done it. 
We're messed up. Every single one of us. The Bible says that each one of us has gone our own way. And we've loved ourselves more than God. And we've loved pleasure rather than God. We've loved distraction rather than God. We've loved just about anything more than God. The Scripture tells us that because God is holy, and because God is just, and because He's good, there's consequences to sin. He, would, he actually wouldn't be good if there weren't. I mean, just, we know that intuitively. We, uh, we, we, would, we would say it's a, it's a wicked cop. It's a wicked police officer who, if he saw, he saw a crime, and just let it go. We wouldn't call him good, right? Because God is good, there's consequences to our, our sin, and we're separated from God. Isaiah 59, 2 says that our sins have made a separation between God. And he's hidden his face from us. And that's why the Bible says, without, not mincing words, that we are without hope and without God in the world. Scripture says in the book of Hebrews, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the wages of our sin is death. A wage is something you've earned. We've earned it, every bit of it. But that's where the good news comes in. Because <laughs> if you still have your Bible open to 2 Corinthians 5, look at what it says in verse 21. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus Christ is the one who knew no sin. Jesus didn't just drop down out of heaven onto a cross. He lived a whole life. He lived a whole life. He lived, he lived a life on this earth almost, almost twice as long as most of you have been alive. That's how long he lived on the earth. He was, and he was, if you read the scriptures, it's affirmed over and over again, he was perfectly obedient at every point of his life. Perfectly obedient to God the Father at every point of his life. He, he, it's mind-boggling. He always did Everything he was supposed to do, he never did anything he wasn't supposed to do. At any moment ever in his life, inwardly, outwardly. Just try to, try to wrap your head around that. I can't do, I feel like I can't, I can't do anything without sinning. Some way. But why did he do that? Why did Jesus do that? The Bible says that he lived the life that we're all supposed to live. Not, not, don't think of it this way. Don't think of that uh, uh, as just being a good example for us. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, the scripture says. But he didn't do that just to be a good example to us, although it is a good example to us. No, the, the, the way the scriptures talk about it, it, it presents Jesus as actually living our life for us. Actually living your life for you. I'm, I'm, I'm getting around to cross-culture, I promise. This is a big part of it. Living your life for you. He's live, he was living for you the life that you owe to God and that I owe to God. The life that everyone ever born is owed to God. Because every, because every one of us has completely failed to live the life that we owe to God. You, you may know Romans 3.23. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We get the first part. All have sinned. Yeah, we sinned, all of us. But what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It doesn't mean, well, you have failed to be as glorious God as God is. Well, nobody is. What it, what, it, what it means is we have not glorified him as, we, as he deserves. It means that we have, haven't loved him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, as Jesus says. We've loved and worshipped and served our own desires instead of God. I mean, just, we're rotten, but not Jesus. Jesus perfectly lived the life that we owe to God. And as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says there, he knew no sin. And yet he was made to be sin for us. What does that mean? This will blow your mind. It means that when, when Jesus went to the cross, God the Father was treating Jesus as if he had lived your life. When Jesus went to the cross, God the Father was treating him on that cross as if he had lived the life that I've lived. Think about that. What Jesus endured on the cross was not what he deserved, but it is what I deserve. It's, it's, it's what you deserve. Why, why was Jesus taking on himself what we deserve? Why did he live my life for me? Why did he die my death for me? Verse 21 says, So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's those words. Do you see that? So that in him... We're wanting to know what does it mean to be in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Well, this says part of being in Christ is being in him means we become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on him the awful consequences of, of, of our lives so that we could have the consequence of his life. That's sweet. That, that's, that's the perfect righteousness of, of Christ given to us to have as we stand before God. Because if all Jesus did, do you realize that if all Jesus did was die on the cross for our sins, ain't nobody going to heaven. You realize that? Because when you stand before God, you need not one thing, two things. They're kind of the flip side of each other. The first thing that you need, yeah, was accomplished by the cross, is a, a record of no guilt. I'm not guilty. That's one thing. cross did that. But the other thing I need is a perfect record of actual obedience in its place. Because if all I have is not guilty, all I've got is a clean slate. I have nothing to commend myself to God. But what I need is not just a clean slate. I need a perfect record of, look, God, I obeyed you. And I don't have either one of those things. The, here's, the, here, here's the example I give to my own kids. It's like, and forgive me if it's childish. It helps me too. It's as if we're all born with a bucket in each hand. You can't see it, but they've got one in each hand. Um, and one of the buckets is collecting all my sins. Every time I sin, it goes into this bucket. 
And every time I obey with a pure heart, it goes in this bucket. And all my life, from the day I was born, I've had these buckets collecting each their own thing. When I, if, if, if I just went to God with my two buckets, what do they look like? When I get there, my sin bucket, I can barely pick up. My sin, my sin bucket is, is real active. But my righteousness bucket is kind of dusty. Jesus was born with the same two buckets. Jesus had the same two buckets, collecting his sin, collecting his righteousness. Every time he obeyed with a pure heart, went to the righteousness bucket. Every time he sinned, he went to the sin bucket. So when he stands before the Father, his buckets are the right way. Never sinned, always did what was right. So what happens, though, both, what happens when you, when you trust Christ when you confess your sins to him and you repent of your sins to him and you put your faith in Jesus, what happens in that, in that transaction is he takes your overflowing sin bucket and pours it into his empty sin bucket. That's, that's the cross. And he takes his overflowing righteousness bucket and pours it into your empty, empty righteousness bucket. That's his life. He, he takes your death, you get his life. So now you stand before God and your buckets are right. I got no sin in my bucket. Why? Because Jesus took it. And I actually have righteousness in my bucket. I didn't do it, but Jesus did it for me. But none of that happens automatically. Just because Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, he calls on us to repent of our sins. He calls on us to repent of our sins and put all of my hope and all of my trust in, in, in what he did for me. And, and read the scriptures. It's not an invitation. It's a command. Acts 17.30 says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. And for those that do, the Bible has a beautiful phrase to describe them. They're in Christ. They're in Christ. Oh, man. Colossians chapter 3 says, the way it puts it is your, your life, for those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ, Colossians 3 says that your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, hidden in Him. It's like your life, Christ, it's hidden in Him. Because God the Father has already accepted Jesus' death in your place. He now accepts Jesus' life in your place too. Guys, this is sweet truth. Oh, man. Think long and hard about it so you, you don't just look glassy-eyed when you hear it. This is really sweet truth. When God, when, when God the Father looks at the cross, He sees you. When He looks at you, He sees Jesus. I mean, there is... Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think in pictures, I do. And I, here's the picture that I always associate with, with, with Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation. I, I, I imagine that I'm standing here and there is a tidal wave coming at me of my own sins. 
a tidal wave of God's judgment, rightful judgment. I can't complain. A tidal wave of rightful consequences coming at me. And before it gets to me, it's like because of what Jesus did for me, before it gets to me, the earth before me opens up and that tidal wave, that that earth just swallows the tidal wave and not even the mist hits me. That's That's the picture. Not even the mist from the water hits me. When, that, when, when Romans 8, 1 says that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it literally means that. Not even missed. We have peace with God through our faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1. That's what it means to be in Christ. And here's where it gets real. If that's you, and you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, Perfect faith? No. Because you're not saved by your faith. You're saved by Christ. Saved through faith, but not by it. But if you are aware of your own sin, and you have confessed your sin, and you you have trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord, no matter what you may think about yourself, let's just go ahead and let that one sink in. No matter what you may think about yourself, in Christ, you are a child of God. You are fully forgiven. You are accepted. You are loved with an everlasting love. And God is for you. In fact, Jeremiah 32, 40 says that God will never stop doing good to you. That's that's what it literally says. I will never stop doing good to them. That means at this very moment he's doing good to you. He's for you. And, 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 And you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every promise of God in Christ Jesus is now yours. And Jesus Christ is now the determining factor in your life. Jesus Christ is now the determining factor in your life. Your identity is not in your friend's. Or lack of, it's not in your, it was not what anybody else thinks about you. It's not in your major. It's not in your grades. It's not in your job. It's not in your gender. It's not in your preferred pronoun. It's not in your race. It's not in your music. It's not in your clothes. It's not in your phone. It's not the image that you project of yourself every day on Instagram or Snapchat. We all have a version of ourselves that we want everybody else to see. Let's be real. We want it, we want it, we'll we'll take picture after picture after picture after picture till we get the right one to present just the right image of ourselves. It's not in stuff. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are in Him. and, 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 And your identity is in Him and everything about you is now redefined in Jesus Christ. I don't know all of you. Some of you, I don't have any doubt, some of you may need to put your hope in Jesus Christ for the first time tonight. I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle or anything, but you know. You know your own heart. And Jesus said, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. 
Life is in Jesus. And our main verse here in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does it mean to be a new creation? And I'm just going to wrap up with this. When you give your life to Christ, you're a new creation. What does that mean? It means that, first of all, like we've already said, that your status before God, who made you, is fixed. It's, Im- it's immovable. You are, you, are, you are as accepted before God as Jesus is. You are, you are as accepted as Jesus is. You are as righteous in his sight as Jesus is. Marinate in that. Meaning that you are in him. It's no longer based on your merit, but his merit. And so when you stumble and stumble hard, nothing has changed. In, in God's eyes on you. Because you're in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. In Christ, that is the new and most defining thing about you. But there's something else about being a new creation. And it's what we're going to spend the rest of the semester doing. You're not going to come on Wednesday nights and listen to me talk for this long, I promise. Something else about being in a, a new creation in Christ is we are free to be completely honest with our struggles and fears with each other. Um, because those things no longer define who we are. Like, I can be totally honest with you about myself because... I no longer feel the need to keep up pretenses about myself because my hope is no longer in myself. My hope is in Jesus Christ who was perfect in my place. And as we're honest with each other about our sins and our struggles, and our fears. The power of those things, that those things feel like they have over us, weakens a little. It does. I mean, have you ever, have you ever confessed something to anybody? And it's like an oppressive weight was lifted off of you. Right? I'm not saying you've got to air all of your dirty laundry to all your friends, but kind of, yeah. No, not really. But kind of. Because I'm telling you, a culture of people who, whose focal point is the cross of Jesus Christ they ought to be the most unshockable people in the world 
there ought to be, if, if you tell me anything about you and it shocks me, shame on me, not you. You hear me on that? Because what, the reason it's shame on me is if you tell me something about you, a struggle that you're having, a sin that you've committed, if you tell me and I get shocked by it, that's hypocrisy and self-righteousness in me. I don't even know my own sin if I get shocked by yours. And the reason that being a new creation in Christ means you find your identity in Him and only in Him and fully in Him to such a degree that you can be completely honest with your brothers and sisters in Christ about yourself is, is, is A, so that, so that that is a means by which the Lord sets you free from those things that you have struggled with. And because ain't nobody in the world else living like that. Nobody else in the world lives like that. The closest thing, the closest the co- closest place you get to that is in a bar. I mean, it's true. And the reason that, yeah, there's a lot of people in a bar, they, they don't care anymore. They know, they, 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 they know their own selves. They don't care anymore, and they're, they're unshockables. We don't matter what you say. But of all people, Shouldn't the church of Jesus Christ be that way? Right? And so, as we, uh, as we come to next week, we're going to just week by week hit, hit a, a struggle that I'm pretty sure that pretty much everybody in the room struggles with, including me. How do you think I came up with the list? I didn't have a book tell me. My own heart told me that we all struggle with. And I'm just going to take a, a few minutes and open the Scriptures, just a few minutes, and help us to try to see that particular struggle through the lens of the cross. And then we're going to take a few minutes to actually split up and pray for each other. And I'm telling you, it's going to be a sweet time. It's going to be a sweet time. It's going to be the one time in your week where you can just totally, totally be real. And you go home feeling real good because you just were so real with somebody else. And as soon as you confess the struggle to them, when you, when, when any other setting, you were expecting awkwardness. You actually saw a moment of relief on the other person's face because they struggle with it too. I'll tell you this, and I'm going to quit, I promise. I was a pastor for seven years um, in a little town between here and Montgomery. And... There was, a, there was a couple in our church that um, 
they, they were uh, about to get engaged, then she got pregnant. So they weren't married, weren't even engaged yet, about to get engaged, but she got pregnant. And sometimes, um, I guess sometimes the, the, the confession of sin might need to be as public as the knowledge of the sin is, and when you get pregnant, it, it's pretty, you can hide it for a little while, but you can't hide it for nine months. And so, um, they felt like, we, we, we talked with them, and they, they felt like they kind of needed, they kind of wanted to and needed to confess that to the church, because they had asked, when they found out, they they said, well, we want to get married. And they wanted me to do the ceremony. And I wanted to do the ceremony. But I couldn't in good conscience do the ceremony with that knowledge. I would feel like I was deceiving my own congregation. I would feel like the words I was saying in the marriage ceremony weren't honest. You know what I'm saying? And so... I said, y'all really need to y'all really need to confess this to the church. And they were scared to death. <laughs> you know, I, I would be too. They were scared to death. And it was a little ta- small town, so everybody already knows. You know what I'm saying? Nothing's a secret. They came forward. I did all the talking for them. Basically, they stood there. And I said, look. They're pregnant. And this is just out of, they, they, they're going to stand here before you and just realize that's out of God's order. Like that's not the order that God designed. If they had it to do over again, they wouldn't do it again, but they've done it. And here, here, here it is. They just want to, they want to confess that to you and confess that they know it's wrong. And they repent of that. I just wish you could have been in the room. I have, I have experienced very few moments like that in my life. I've done it in small groups, but rarely in the presence of an entire congregation of people. The most palpable sense of utter relief and just, it's not the, it's not the response you're expecting. The most it was joyful. Not that they, not that that was the sin, but that they confessed. And now, it's like now the whole church is free to love that person in full knowledge of their sin, but love them and do for them and come alongside them, right? That's what, that's what being real does. It produces a real culture of people that the cross of Jesus Christ ought to produce. Otherwise, we're, I think we're still really just trusting in ourselves. Trusting in our own goodness. Trusting that as long as you see what I want you to see, that's what's most important. Forgetting there's someone else who sees. 